So we're in the series, in the middle of this series, Resist. We're talking about how God calls us to resist kind of the things in our life that pull us away from God or, uh, you know, really there are many, many things. We've said this all throughout the series. There are many, many things that we're not even aware of all the time, like families, family of origin, our environment, society, friends, forms of entertainment, all of these things that are competing for our attention and are influencing us in ways that we're all uh, often not aware of, and it has the potential to change us, to, to form us, or you could say to deform us out of the image of God that he created us to be. And, you know, growing up in the church, we've all heard things like, you know, be like Jesus, have the mind of Christ, you are in the world, but not of the world, right? These are things we say, uh, but, but, you know, as I think about that, like, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be like Jesus, uh, because that's a pretty high bar, right? I don't know about, maybe you're okay with that, but like, I feel like I'm never living up if the goal is to be like Jesus. What does it mean uh, to be in the world, not of the world? What does it mean to be transformed in this way? Uh, the question we need to ask is like, what, is, what would Jesus do if Jesus were you? If Jesus lived in your neighborhood, if Jesus worked at your job, if Jesus, if Jesus was fully formed in you, if, if the image of Christ, if, if the, the deformation of this world and all of its influences were to be overcome by the transformation of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit transformed you into the fullness of who God created you to be, this is what we're really asking when we ask this question. But there's a tension in it, right? Because it's not just about behaving better. I mean, Jesus didn't come and live as a human being and die on the cross and was resurrected three days, three days later so that you could have a better life. I mean, he does want you to have a better life, but, but he didn't do all of that just to make you nicer or to help you behave in all the right ways. He didn't, he didn't do that just so that you could live life Happy. So when we listen to a sermon, when we come to church, we're not asking God to entertain us. We're not asking God to do any of those other things that just make our lives more complete or more full. What we're asking, friends, is for the Spirit of God to transform our lives, to transform us into the image of Christ that he created us to be. We have a role to play in this. It's an active, interactive transformation of allowing the Holy Spirit to be more alive in us. And so as we come together, we believe these things. We believe that as we worship, that God fills our hearts and our minds, and he actually can change us, that he can change your thought patterns and your worldviews, that the power of a thought, right? When God gets a hold of your mind and changes your mind about something that actually leads to you living in a different way because your mind has been fixed on him and transformed and your life begins to follow the pattern of Jesus because of this thought transformation that leads to a life transformation that ultimately touches the world and makes ripple effects into the world in the way that the world actually changes. This is what God desires and dreams for us to experience this true faith that is active, that is not passive, but that is leaning into the fullness of who God wants us to be. This is what Paul wrote in chapter 12 
of his letter to the Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed. Listen, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Listen, there was a tension. There was a challenge for the church in Rome. The, the church in Rome was not, you know, first church in whatever town, Texas, okay? The church in Rome was a persecuted church. The church in Rome was living a drastically countercultural kind of faith. The church in Rome, the people that Paul is writing this letter to, okay, they were not going to some plush, nice, I, I, I'm grateful for, right, like church buildings that we can come to to worship. I'm not, nothing against that, but that's not what their experience of faith and Christianity and their community was different. They met in homes because that's, all they had to meet in, number one, and secondly, because if the authorities found out that they were meeting, there would be trouble for them. It was a very different kind of church gathering. And so when they read these, these words that Paul wrote to them, they had likely walked to a home past all sorts of symbols of the, the Roman power and the Roman gods and the deities of the day. There were all these temples and shrines and images that pointed to the power of Rome that wanted to dominate you to keep you down. This was the world they lived in. This was the worldview they were coming into this with. And Paul writes to them and says, do not be, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. You see, this was a radically different message of, of sacrifice and of laying your life down and putting others first and, it, and, and, and to resist the urge to, to honor the gods of Rome and all that they represent, the gods of money and the gods of possessions and the gods of wealth and the gods of power to not bow down to those things but to bow down to the one true God and to allow his spirit to transform you that everything about your life then honors him and worships him by giving. The church is not to be conformed. And now listen, legalism is not the answer, okay? That's also not the answer. Jesus didn't die, again, just to make sure that you behaved the right sort of way. But the world is, call, crying, is, is calling out to us all the time and seeking to, and, and all the patterns of this world are, are challenging our way of life as a follower of Jesus, and instead we must resist those things. This is what we've talked about in, in this series. Resist so that you can live in a transformed kind of way, the way that the Spirit would have you. Resist and you will become stronger. Today I want to talk to you about celebration and how celebration resists cynicism. Anybody with me? We have a cynicism problem in our world today. Everybody can identify that out in the world, but let me just challenge you and say, again, what about in here? Anybody? We got any cynics in the crowd? Some of you are proud cynics, right? Because you're not gonna be duped, right? 
But cynicism, I'm gonna talk to you about cynicism and what cynicism really is and why it's contrary to the spirit of God, this, this attitude of cynicism. Now, cynicism, let me just say, first of all, in, 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 at some level, there's like a healthy cynicism, right? There's like a healthy skepticism. Like my wife and I, when we go buy a new car, we, we approach buying a car very differently. I'm not always a cynical person. My wife's almost never a cynical person, but I am a cynical person when I deal with car dealers. Anybody with me? right? I'm cynical, okay? And, and sometimes, like, listen, we, we deal, when we hear things on the news, like, like our world is, is feeding us many things that are causing us to be cynical. And what I want to talk to you about today is a cynicism that is not, listen, it's not about being cynical about political leaders or Washington or or. Or, or politicians, okay? I'll let you be cynical about them. <laughs> I'll give you that, okay? As long as they're not our local, not our local politicians, okay? Because some of them go to our church, okay? <laughs> but I'm talking about out there, okay? And, and he, because here's what happens. When we are constantly fed all of this negative news, are you with me? Like negative news all the time. Negative, everything's negative. And we watch because it's negative and somehow it sucks us in. But when you, when you have access to all of the worst things that are happening in the world, real, realize with me, this is not normal. This is not how the world has ever been before. But you know what bad thing happened no matter where it happened and you have access to that news instantly and you're hearing about all of the bad news of the world all at the same time. Listen, friends, the world's not any worse than it's ever been. In fact, there are studies that show it's actually getting better. I know that's hard to believe. The difference is you know about every bad thing that happens right when it happens, <laughs> no matter where it happens. And what's, what's starting to to, to become a reality is that we are starting to assume the negative, the worst, always. Because we're bombarded by more negative news than we've ever had to deal with before, okay? And that's one thing if you're talking about Washington or politics. It's another thing when that level of cynicism starts to do this. It starts to make you assume the worst intentions out of the people who are closest to you. And I don't know about you, but I'm not Jesus. Well, actually, I do know about you. You're not Jesus either. <laughs> and none of us are perfect. And it's very easy for people who are close, it would be very easy for people who are close to me to assume that when I say something or do something that, that I have, that they can assume the worst. And it's much more challenging today, I think, than ever before to assume the best, the best out of those, especially out of those who are close to you, especially your spouse or your kids or your relatives or your neighbors or your coworkers, the people whose lives are close to you. See, it's one thing when we can, you know, go on a rant about politics and all the politicians and how all of that. It's another thing when that same attitude starts to, 
without us knowing it, starts to creep into our hearts and we start to begin, we start to begin, we we begin to start thinking the same things about the people who are close to us. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, that, that his prayer for the church in Rome was this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit may, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I want you to just absorb that for a second. There's a lot there. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Rome. In many ways, this is a prayer that I would pray for Foundry, for our church today. That the God of hope would fill you with joy. Anybody need some joy? And peace. Joy and peace are radically different than what this world is selling right now. So that the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's work in you, transforming you, that you may abound in hope. Peace, hope, joy. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Some of our personalities are more bent towards cynicism, okay? And part of it is just acknowledging that. But in essence, cynicism is this. Cynicism is an attitude of scornful or jaded negativity, especially a general distrust of the integrity or professed motives of others. So cynicism is thinking the worst. It's starting from a place of distrust and negativity. And what this does, this leads to frustration, disillusionment, distrust regarding organizations, authorities, and all other aspects of society. Because you've had a bad experience, previous experience, people who have bad experiences are typically jaded when they encounter the same thing again. And there's a part of that that's natural and that's healthy, right? That we're guarding against uh, bad things that happen. We're not gonna you know, fall prey to uh, something that's going to do something harmful. But when we're constantly bombarded with all of this news and it feeds an attitude of cynicism and we're not even aware of it, then it starts to get out of control and it starts to lead to fault finding in everything that we do. And it starts to do something else to our brain. It starts to make us believe that that what we have is never going to be enough. We're, We're also bombarded by lots of messages like the the advertisement all the time and advertisement is designed to do what to create a need in you that you didn't even know you had and then if you buy this or do this or experience this then you're going to be what you're going to be happy but you know what once you buy that or get that or have that experience guess what they have another job to do they have to create something else for you to want in What's next? And you're left always focused. Social media does this, what you don't have. It emphasizes what you don't have, what you want, what will make you happy. In in the prologue to the book, Winners Take All, the author gives a few reasons why cynicism in our country may be on the rise. 
He points out these statistics that, that American scientists make the most important discoveries in medicine and genetics and, and publish more biomedical research today than, than any other country, but the average American's health remains worse and slower improving than, the peers, than our peers in richer countries. Why does that, in rich countries, why does that make sense? It doesn't. If we, if we are leading in healthcare, then why are we not the healthiest nation in the world? American inventors create an astonishing, uh, create astonishing new ways to learn all the time. You realize how many more ways we have to learn now than we ever have? Like we have access to more than we've ever had. We can learn more. The, the power of video and the internet has exponentially increased our ability to access information and to learn. And listen, that's not always been free. You realize that's not normal, right? That you can get free information. It used to cost you a lot of money. But still, today, the average 12th grader tests more poorly in reading than in 1992. How can that be? How can tests be going down if we have more access to information? There's something else going on that's contributing to this. This country has also had a culinary renaissance he talks about. Can I get an amen? Like, how many of you? Like, we didn't have this kind of food when I was growing up. Like, you can just get whatever you want from around the world. Right? You can go to a restaurant and you can pick between the whole, I mean, literally the whole world. You can, the, the, the best food from the whole world you can get. And yet, in, in, in spite of the fact that there are all these health options and whole foods and, and farmers markets and grocery stores that are like crazy with health food, like it's, in, it's incredible. Despite all of this, we have failed to improve the nutrition of the average American. We're actually less healthy, even though we have access to all. Do you know what kind of junk I used to eat when I was a kid, what we all ate, what was normal? I mean, who, who drank tab? Seriously. <laughs> right, and now we know what that stuff does. We didn't know back then. I don't know, tab just came to mind right then. <laughs> but but the, the, the incidence of obesity and related conditions is going up. It's rising over time. In fact, something else is going on, right? It's not having the right answers. Entrepreneurial access, right? Students can learn code, teach themselves all sorts of things. You can become an entrepreneur and you can have so many more opportunities to do your own thing and be your own boss and achieve. And yet, most young people, in fact, the, the stats show that young people who own a business has fallen by two-thirds since the 80s. There, there, let's, that's a staggering statistic, that with all the ways that you can be an entrepreneur, that, that it's fallen by two-thirds since the 80s, the number who own a business. America has birthed, like, listen, Amazon and Google, what else do I need to say? Like, do you remember the day when you couldn't, in your living room, like, in your pajamas, just go, hey, Alexa, order coffee, order whatever, like, I don't even know, whatever you wanted. And it was like, it'll be there tomorrow. Can we praise God for some of those conveniences? <laughs> like, I remember, you know, I remember when it took days, weeks, and then sometimes, God forbid, it was just, you can't have that. 
Like that's not a thing anymore, right? Or like Google, like who, who lately has sat around for hours debating and talking and, and trying to figure out and arguing points for the answer to some ridiculous and obscure question about, I don't know, how something's made or, or what, whatever. Nobody does that anymore, right? I mean, it used to be hours of conversation and I wonder if it's like robbing our relationships that we can't have ridiculous conversations anymore. You can't because somebody is always gonna go, Google knows, right? And they're gonna punch it in. They're gonna find the answer. And you can't wonder. We don't wonder anymore. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to de- really debate a- about any of those little things anymore. And yet with all of this, with all of this access to information and with books, who's been to a bookstore lately? Yeah, a couple of you have. Um, it's more for the novelty than anything, isn't it? It's certainly not because it's more convenient to go to a bookstore or that you know that the bookstore will have the book you need. If you need a book, you can go on Google or Amazon and you can get any book, like millions of books are in print. There are more books and you could be in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the jungle and you could still read books for free. It's ridiculous. It's wonderful. And yet, the stat shows that those Americans who read one work of literature a year has dropped by almost 25%, just in the last 10 years. Think about it. Like, if our parents and grandparents had access to the number of pieces of literature that we have, can you imagine like what they would think? We have access to everything, and yet nobody's learning. Nobody's growing. What is it underneath all of this? This growing cynicism, I think, in a large part, is contributing to this because the attitude is story of my life, right? Everything's gonna always be bad. Nothing's gonna be good enough. It'll never get good enough because we're bombarded with the negative all the time. And so that's why John Tyson says this, that celebration, celebration, not joy. You would think joy, right? Celebration is godly defiance in a culture of doubt. That celebration, celebration is what combats the negative. Celebration is what combats, is what resists the cynicism in our lives that is robbing us. Celebration is an act. Celebration is a decision. And here's where I wanna go with this. Like, I want you to start from this because as a follower of Jesus, this is what we need to know is like, who is God, right? What is God like? Because I imagine our our image of God might have created some of this. Do you think of God as jaded? Do you think of God as grumpy? Because some of us, depending on our church background when we grow up, we think of an angry God, we think of a grumpy God, we think of a God who's counting all of our list of all the things we've done wrong and holding them against us. But what does the scripture say about God? It says to us, it it teaches us that, that God is actually the happiest being in the whole universe. Like I've never thought about that actually until I was preparing for this message. Happy God. God is happy. God is full of joy. God is not angry. God is not vindictive. 
Those are the things that lead to a cynical way of life. He's actually filled with joy. Now, clearly, God does get angry. But he gets angry when the world is broken, when sin happens that separates us from God and from one another. When people are harmed, he gets angry. Jesus is called uh, Jesus is remembered as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but that is because he wanted us to know that he understood what it was like to walk the life that we walked, and he's not unfamiliar with it, but it doesn't mean he stays there. You see, God doesn't stay angry, and God doesn't stay sorrowful. He experiences both of them, but his predominant character is a character of joy and love and peace, and hope. This is who God is. And when you start to realize that this is who God is, his primary attribute, then you start to realize that anything that is apart from that is a deformation of his image that he created you in, that when you are not full of joy, you're not living as a Christ-like person. You are experiencing a momentary Trouble or loss, yes, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with grieving. It's not that you're far from God in those moments, but where do you turn and how do you celebrate in the midst of it? How do you engage fully every emotion in a way that leads you out of sorrow and grief into hope and into joy? Because that is what God does. And that is what he does for us when we engage with him in this way. Even in the the most depressing book of the Bible, Job is a depressing book. It's the oldest story, okay, because the story is true and always has for all of humanity is why do bad things happen to good people? And Job wrestles with God, and Job's life is full of calamity and and full of loss, and all of his friends blame him and say, you must not be doing something right. You must not be living right. You must have done something to anger God, and Job just laments and turns to God in all of this wondering. And I love that like there's a little like interchange between God and Job and and I love that that Job is or that God in this interchange is even a little sarcastic because I've been known to be a little sarcastic occasionally. But God says this to Job, "Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding." Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Listen to this. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, any... Affliction that we have in this life is momentary and God is eternal and God is a God of celebration. Isn't that good news? God is a God of celebration that he invites us to celebrate, to experience joy. And you might not always feel like it, but your body is hardwired this way. In fact, there are chemicals in your brain called dopamine and serotonin. They're neurotransmitters in the brain, these chemicals that are, that are released in your brain when you do certain things that make you happy. In fact, people with clinical depression are often uh, have lower levels of serotonin in their brain. That's why they feel a certain way. So if you're feeling down, 
Now, listen, listen, I'm not talking about this as a cure for depression, okay? So just, and I'm not talking about a, a quick, but, but I'm just pointing to the fact that, that there is something physiological about celebration that changes the environment. Are you with me? Okay, don't, don't quote, misquote me here. If you're feeling down, simple activities like this, like going for a walk in nature, change. It releases chemicals in your brain that actually change the way you feel when you go for a walk, Petting your dog or cat. Sometimes hitting my dog makes me feel better, but. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? It's not, not nice. I love my dog. Kissing a loved one. Doesn't say which loved one, how long, or what kind of kiss, but something. Some, I thought y'all would laugh at that one. Come on. L listen, even forcing yourself to smile. In fact, like I just made, I was trying to make you laugh. I failed, but then, then you came with me. When, you, when was the last time you had a really, not like that little chuckle that was more polite because you didn't want me to get my feelings hurt, but like a real belly laugh because something was really, really funny. When was the last time you laughed like that? Because what science shows us is that these, these things, even like fake smiling, forcing yourself to smile. I know, it feels weird. For some of you, it feels really weird. I look at you every week and I wonder if you ever smile. You know it's true, like some of you like the grumpy face. You like to frown, like you, you don't wanna smile right now because you feel like you'd be losing with this little thing that we have going on right now. But when you force yourself to smile, it actually does something chemically in your brain that changes the way that you feel and the way that you see the world and ultimately that's gonna change your relationships. I'm not talking about being fake or phony. I'm just saying that in life we can find things to celebrate, things to be happy about, that all of life is not negative, and if you have a Debbie Downer attitude, you're not gonna change anything for good. And so choose to celebrate, choose to throw a party. What if, what if, like, what if people, when they thought of Christians, they thought, oh yeah, they're the party people. <laughs> like, they're always full of joy. In fact, like I had, a, I had a college teammate that one day at practice, I still remember this, one day at practice, Skip looked at me and he said, like, Ray, why are you always happy? And I was like, well, I'm not always happy, but I know this sounds cheesy, but I really believe that it's the joy of the Lord in me. And he said, I thought that's what you were gonna say. Because he knew my faith, right? Jacqueline and I were at the Astros game Friday night, Astros are doing pretty well right now, amen? We get a little celebration for that, you know, like that. Yeah, see guys, you don't have a problem celebrating the Astros, right? So like we were sitting there and a home run was hit, I don't remember who hit it, but somebody hit a home run and the place was going nuts and we, like we looked at each other and Jacqueline was like, what if Sunday was like that? And I was like, yes, amen, because like, like, a guy, listen, I, I love baseball and I, lo like, I love to celebrate. There's something about it that I think actually does connect with this, what we're wired to do to celebrate because you're all dressed in the same colors together and somebody does something and you all cheer together and there's community and there's like, but like we're talking about a guy with a stick hitting a ball over a fence. 
and you're going nuts. I'm talking about a guy who went in the grave and three days later got up out of it so that you could live forever. <laughs> and so that our world, our world would be transformed and all the brokenness of this is not forever. Friends, we should celebrate. Yes, there's a bunch of crummy stuff in our world. Yes, there's a bunch of brokenness in our world. But we should be the ones taking the party to the world. Celebrating the reality that, that we remember when we come to this table. This is how we're going to celebrate today at the table. Because Jesus knew that our world was broken and yet he broke his body for us. And he told us every time we come to this table, this is, not, this is not a table you come with your face downcast, okay? There's some repentance and some reflection, but this is a celebration that God's body was broken for you and that his blood was shed for you, that he poured out his blood and he said, take, drink, this is my, my body and my blood broken and poured out for you. And so God, I pray right now that you would that you would transform our hearts and our minds, that this, this holiday weekend would be just an opportunity to celebrate the goodness of life that we enjoy, the blessings of living in this place, but the blessings even more of knowing the place that we have to look forward to one day that is free from pain and hurt. And God, you have called us to be a people that blesses our world. And so we, pour, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that you'd pour out your Spirit upon these gifts of bread and wine, that as we take from your table, as we receive, that it might be a table, a banquet table, like that banquet table we will celebrate in heaven one day with you, when we'll feast at your heavenly banquet. And so pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Make us party people, make us full of life, make us full of joy and hope, and help us to share that with the world. Help us to pick each other up when we are down and to turn our faces to you that when we gather together in this place that our worship might be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.